Well, it's that time for us, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, <clears throat> turn in our Bibles and uh, dig into the Word of God this morning. I'm excited to do that with you. We're in Galatians chapter 2, ongoing in our study of this great book. We've seen uh, so many practical things that have come from it already. I'm excited to share the things that I have uh, mined this week and the week previous. We're looking at verses 11 to 14, and as you're turning there, let me um, bring just a few words of, of introduction. I think you'll agree with me that there's nothing like the gospel on earth, nothing like it at all on earth. It's so unique in, in many ways. It's divine, for one thing. It's not a human word, but a word from God's mouth. It's considered, of course, very foolish to the ears of the natural man, but it is the wisdom of God. And a person will reject it every time, of course, unless the Lord intervenes. It's that foolish to the natural man. The gospel is also freeing, very freeing. It can save one from the bondage of sin and give a person the desire to, and ability to obey God. It's unifying. In fact, it's, it's the one thing that can establish true unity, true permanent unity between all peoples the truest and surest solution to racism. It's also part of God's means of salvation. It's by no means a magical formula. Magic, of course, has nothing to do with the gospel. Simon Magus discovered after that after Peter's sharp rebuke. You cannot simply go around and recite the elements of the gospel and expect people that and expect that everyone who hears it will automatically become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. The gospel comes with a context, and people need to understand the gospel in context before God will work through those words, and he will, by the way, and no other message will do, not even any variation of that message either. When God does work through his gospel, his work is of two kinds. He either hardens men's hearts by the gospel and repels them from himself, or he regenerates their hearts and draws them to himself in salvation. The gospel is a double-edged sword that God wields according to his will. Paul once said that the gospel is a stench of death, you may remember, to those who are perishing, but a sweet aroma of life to those who are saved by it. Finally, I might also mention that those who have been saved by the gospel will live by it, because it is that powerful. The saved life is the one that is centered around gospel truth, and it exists to showcase that gospel to the world. Just because some claim to believe the gospel does not mean that he or she has no life. His faith must be real faith, right? James talks about that. Living faith. This was Jim Boyce's point that we ended with, or ended our study with last time, regarding Peter's sinful act. Let me quote it again. He said, quote, It is not enough merely to understand and accept the gospel, as Peter did, nor even to defend it, as he did in Jerusalem. A Christian must also practice the gospel consistently, allowing it to regulate uh, all areas of his conduct, end quote. And he's right. He means by that, of course, that Christians must live consistently their confession. Sin puts us at odd with gospel living. 
And at that point, we're not good advertisements of the gospel. In fact, we can distort its simple message simply by our sinful activity. This is where Peter was at, at at, at Antioch, and this is why Paul rebuked him. We captured the essence of that passage, verses 11 to 14, by stating that we must rebuke immediately and publicly the believer who, for fear of man, adopts a lifestyle that distorts the gospel of grace before he eventually destroys the unity of the body. The first application from our text that we made last time focused really on the importance of rebuke. If you remember, if you were with us, we said that that we're to rebuke a believer who fears man more than God and puts his lifestyle uh, out of line with the gospel or lives a lifestyle that is not consistent with his confession. That's in verses 11 and 12. Just for the sake of review, excuse me, I might mention that we talked a great deal about the fear of God. And we made the case that it's one of those all-encompassing phrases that captures really the essence of a relationship between a believer and God. It means that you find God more important and more valuable than anyone and anything else. And that's why both the Old and the New Testaments refer to the fear of God as a synonym for the converted life. But believers can at times, if they're not careful, fear man more than God. And when that happens, what we fear rules us. It controls us. We drift into sinful behavior that is not in keeping with, the, with gospel living. And that was the case with Peter during his time in Antioch. He feared man more than God. His illegitimate fear dictated his behavior, and, and it kept him from living consistently with his confession. Actually, <clears throat> he distorted the gospel. Given Peter's past experience preaching to the Samaritans, and then to Cornelius and a full house of Gentiles, seeing the Lord work salvation among them, having received a special revelation from the Lord himself, assuring him that in the new covenant era, Gentiles are no longer unclean, but enjoy the same status as Jews in salvation, and that it's okay to eat with them. Are we surprised at all to find Peter at the Antioch church enjoying table fellowship with the Gentiles? No. No, we're not surprised at all. In fact, we're, we're quite surprised to find Peter withdrawing from the Gentile believers around a fellowship meal. But this is the power, you see, of the fear of man. Now, our next application highlights the seriousness of Peter's sin and, it justifi- and justifies the importance of Paul's rebuke it focuses our attention on the consequences of such sinful behavior. And that's what I want to turn your attention to next in verse 13. The consequences of such a sinful lifestyle, if left unaddressed, will eventually destroy the unity of the body. It will destroy the unity of the body. Here's what Paul writes. The rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
Now, <clears throat> let's start with Peter's hypocrisy, just to set the foundation for our understanding of this. Paul tells us that the damage to the Antioch church was precipitated by Peter's one single act of hypocrisy. The English word hypocrisy comes from the Greek to play a part, to wear a mask, which is what Greek players did in theater. Your mask was a false persona, of course, was not the real you. And figuratively, then, the word eventually came to be, to, to be understood as concealing your true character or thoughts or feelings under the guise of pretending to be something else. In essence, a hypocrite. Paul states here that Peter put on a false front. He was wearing a mask so to speak, and acting against what he knew in his heart to be right. Leon Morris explains it this way in his commentary. He said that Peter did not, at this moment, act out of principle, as the men from, the, uh, from James had. If these men from James were indeed Judaizers, and that was, as we said, one valid view of their identity, the same group that Paul talks about back in in Galatians 2.4, as those who insisted that Gentile Christians keep the law of Moses and be circumcised, if they were Judaizers, then they separated from Gentiles on principle. What Morris means by that is that they honestly believe that Gentile Christians must become Jews first in order to become genuine Christians. That was their principle. But the same cannot be said of Peter. He didn't separate from Gentile believers here on the basis of principle. He knew better. He did what was most expedient for him out of, out of fear. And this is why Paul rightly charges him with hypocrisy. And the same would go for the Jewish believers in Antioch who followed his lead. Now I want to clarify just before we leave this that no matter if, if some separated from the Gentiles on principle or by hypocrisy, both were still wrong. Both were still sinful. Now with that in mind, I want to focus our attention then in this hour on the consequence of a professing believer who lives in a way that is inconsistent with his confession. That is, whose life is not gospel-centered. The implication from Paul's words here in verse 13 is clearly that he will tear at the unity of the body. That if it's not addressed, eventually he will even destroy the body, or the unity of the body. Now, how does that happen exactly? <clears throat> well, let me give you four examples from this verse. All right, here we go. Number one, <clears throat> and I did publish these for you, so we could kind of move through this with some ease. Those who, lived in, who live inconsistently with their confession can influence others in the body to follow their example. That's one way that they will begin to tear at the unity of the body and eventually destroy the unity of the body. This is especially true if a person we're talking about is a leader. Peter's sinful actions in the Antioch church had a ripple effect in the membership, as sinful actions always do to some degree, and the effect was not a good one. The immediate consequence was that the 
Jews join Peter in his hypocrisy. That's what it says. Now, the Jews here, of course, are the Jewish Christians at Antioch, who up to this point had enjoyed a close communion with their Gentile brothers in Christ. A sweet fellowship that, as we just mentioned before, was a hallmark of the Antioch church. We actually mentioned that last time. But now, well, now that sweet fellowship was threatened by Peter's actions. There is one word that describes their collusion with Peter that our English Bibles translates various ways. Your translation may say the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy. Some might say they played the hypocrite or they acted hypocritically. The King James has they dissembled. And that word means that they concealed their true motives. The idea is simply that they all knew better but went against what they knew to be right and biblical. And so Paul says even Barnabas was carried away. He too played along with Peter and the others in their hypocrisy. So already the unity of the church was being compromised. It was weakened as more followed Peter's lead. Now I want you to notice that the verb to join in hypocrisy is passive. It's passive. When a verb is passive, it means that the action of the verb is being done on the the subject. Right? So, this means here that the Jewish Christians and Barnabas then were swept up by Peter's hypocrisy. That, That means Peter actually had an influence on them. They were swept up in the hypocrisy. It's, it's very easy, I, I think, to get caught up in bad decisions and directions in the heat of the moment. I'm not denying that. We've got to be very careful. But let's not think for a second that Jewish Christians here and Barnabas were not to blame for their actions. Peter was doubly guilty for his sinful influence on these men, but they still were accountable for their own actions. Barnabas sided with Peter, but he could have resisted, and he should have. No one made Barnabas join in. And Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is quite clear that Barnabas did, in fact, join in their hypocrisy. He was accountable. He was influenced, but he was still accountable. Let's never forget, beloved, how easy it is to be influenced by the actions of others or by movements that seem good proved to be actually spiritually detrimental to the body. It's very easy. It's happening all over the place today. Back then, Peter and the Jewish Christians made it easy for Barnabas to follow along. And it reminds us of the truth that Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bad company corrupts good behavior. If we're not careful, we can get caught up in the sinful actions of others or by strong movements within Christianity Years and years ago, there was the Seeker Movement, led by Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, two disciples of Robert Schuller, in fact, who brought the world into the church by tailoring the gospel and worship so that that the world would find it acceptable. You can see how the gospel was being threatened there. They, They were then eventually replaced by another movement called the Emergent Movement, which argued that the gospel was an absolute 
but still emerging, which was very convenient, of course, for people who found the, the biblical gospel offensive. This way you could kind of define it any way you want and still be a part of the gang. Many many believed that promise, keep, promise keepers was such a great thing. I don't know, some of you may remember that movement. It argued that that it, not the local church, is really where men need to go in order to be learn, in order to learn how to be real men. And it bred ecumenism, of course, by including Catholic priests on the platform that skewed the gospel. There have been and will continue to be movements and societies and coalitions, call them whatever you will, in Christianity. But in the end, they always go the way of all flesh. Always. They're not the church, and they lack the same accountability of the church. They all seem to distort the gospel in some form or fashion. And the most obvious example, I think, today is the woke movement. We're not surprised at that. It's found its way in church shortly after it was introduced to the public in 2017. And thanks in large part to the influence of once reputable men and seminaries that know better, it became a very dangerous influence. Personally, they have not only misled the body of Christ at large, but, but those of us who have not been taken in by the movement really question their, the reliability of their work, their publications, their conference speaking. And we should. We should question their reliability. Even men that I've long admired for, the, for their contribution in the field of biblical counseling have become caught up in this movement and have discredited their work, I think, going forward. In fact, I've stopped teaching at a particular seminary for this very reason. Now, it's certainly true that God holds people and institutions like that accountable for their part in misleading other Christians by their persuasive words and influential actions. God warns parents not to provoke their children to wrath. And God warns the, the strong in conscience not to lead the weak against their conscience to sin, right? But at the same time, no Christian can ever blame false teachers, false churches, sinful situations, and dangerous movements for their own sinful participation within them. Amen. Each Christian is accountable to God for his and her own actions. We have no one to blame, beloved, but ourselves. You need to stick to the word very closely. Number two, talking about how how a lifestyle that is uh, not consistent with its confession can tear the unity of a, of a church. Number two, those who live inconsistently with their confession, well, they can set a dangerous precedent. They can set dangerous precedents. When Peter segregated himself, he set a precedent that other Jewish Christians followed, even Barnabas, right? And there's a good reason to believe that the division that Peter's actions created were actually welcomed by the Antioch church over Paul's protests. And really? Yes. Really. Richard Longnecker explains in his commentary that if Peter had repented before Paul wrote Galatians, think about this, Paul would surely have mentioned it. Why? 
Well, because it would have been a, it would have greatly enhanced Paul's argument against the Judaizers in Galatians, and it would have enhanced his argument in the minds of the Galatians to mention that Peter had repented and the Antioch church as a whole supported Paul. It would it would it would really advance his argument tenfold, but he doesn't mention anything, which seems to suggest that nothing had happened at this point. Longnecker says this, you ready? Quote, the omission of such statements in Paul's account has led many to conclude that actually Paul lost and Peter triumphed at Antioch. It may very well have been that case that at the time Paul wrote Galatians at Antioch, the Antioch church, it was siding more or less with Peter rather than Paul, and so Paul could only report what he said and the logic of his case, end quote. You can see how easily then Peter's actions could have set a precedent of segregation, clearly not just in Antioch, but in other Gentile churches throughout the empire, if this wasn't taken care of quickly. More than this, the current sinful consequence of this precedent eventually precipitated the Jerusalem Council isn't that interesting? Maybe you've not thought about that. This is what F.F. F. Bruce argues, and I think he's right. He says that there is no indication that Peter, the Jewish Christians at Antioch or Barnabas, admitted to any wrongdoing. And if that was not challenged further, then they would have set a precedent that would have destroyed the church at large. The division then between Peter and Paul had to be addressed for the sake of the faith. And thankfully, as Luke records in Acts 15, Paul was shown to be in the right at the council, and Peter came around. Number three, those who live inconsistently with their confession prove to be unreliable in ministry. Peter and Barnabas are two examples of this. Let me explain. With respect to Peter, there's no question that Paul was extremely disappointed with him, having met him roughly a year ago, to confirm the gospel of grace and to receive from him the right hand of fellowship. Do you remember we talked about this? Only now to find Peter acting hypocritically. Furthermore, we can assume safely that their cooperation in ministry at this point ended. They were clearly at odds until after the Jerusalem Council where Peter agreed with Paul. Now we can only assume, in light of this, that Peter repented and Paul forgave. If what we know to be true about reconciliation, and these two were legitimate apostles, and that they were at odds before the council, but not after the council, then reconciliation would have had to have taken place, and we can assume that safely. As regards Barnabas, we have proof that his missionary work with Paul came to an abrupt end, sadly. It's no stretch to surmise that Paul was doubly disappointed with Barnabas. Why do I say that? Well, after all, it was Barnabas who brought Paul into fellowship with the apostles when they were afraid of him at first and, and doubted the reality of his conversion. He brought Paul into the church at Antioch to disciple young converts. He accompanied Paul to Jerusalem with the relief fund for the poor. He worked with Paul on the first missionary journey, himself preaching 
the gospel of grace. Leon Morris says at this point, quote, it is not surprising that Paul evidently took this man's defection very hard. He of all men would have been expected to stand with Paul. Once again, Bruce's insight is noteworthy here. He suggests that it was Barnabas's hypocrisy that really promoted, uh, prompted rather, Paul to eventually part ways with Barnabas. Luke records in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas parted company just before the start of the second missionary journey because they couldn't agree as to whether they should take John Mark with them, if you remember. But Bruce explains, and others agree with him, Longnecker as well, that it was Barnabas's sinful collusion with Peter at Antioch that effectively ended his close association with Paul and that the dispute over John Mark would not have been enough for them to part ways. If this is the case, then Paul found Barnabas to be, to be unreliable now. That is, that is not to say that Paul had not forgiven Barnabas. We assume, again, that Barnabas, as with Peter, asked Paul for forgiveness, and Paul forgave. But forgiveness, forgiving someone and trusting someone are two different things indeed. Barnabas would have proved trustworthy in Paul's would have would had to prove trustworthy in Paul's eyes before Paul would ever lock arms with him in ministry again. Paul couldn't risk another episode and jeopardize the gospel before the Gentiles. Now I want to say that there is hope for those who sin in a way that destroys the trust that they once enjoyed with others in the body. Oh yes. There's always hope. When there's life, there's hope. It first begins with repentance, which any offended person must grant immediately, or else he sins against his confessing brother. But trust is not something that can be granted immediately and has to be earned back, and it can be over time. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now the tenor of the passage, Ephesians chapter 4, combined with the put-off, put-on principle that Paul mentions here, gives confirmation that what Paul is speaking of here is full repentance. And full repentance is when a person is no longer characterized by a particular life-dominating sin, but rather is characterized instead by the behavior that is in keeping with his new nature in Christ, with with gospel living. And that's exactly what what Paul is getting at here. The one who is known as a thief puts off characteristics of thieving and replaces them or puts on in their place characteristics of a giver to the point where he becomes known now as a giver. And so there is hope. Number four, those who live inconsistently with their confession will despise those who live consistent gospel-centered lives and even develop a sense of superiority. Now this is terrible. 
The Greek word behind the translation carried away has the idea of being led from a previous association with someone or something. It's, it's, it's only other occurrences in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, where Paul tells Roman Christians to resist being prideful or haughty and associate with the lowly. To associate with the lowly means to be affiliated with those less fortunate than yourselves, to connect with them, to align with them in a common cause for gospel ministry. It makes no difference if they're poor or rich. In Galatians, the word carries much the same idea, but in the negative. Barnabas was led to disassociate with Gentile Christians, break communion with them because of their ethnicity. Huh. Cease to work arm in arm with them in the common cause of the gospel because they were not Jews. If we understand Paul correctly, a clear, obvious division suddenly existed between these two ethnic groups. The dividing wall that had once existed between them, which Jesus tore down by his crosswork, Peter and the Jewish Christians there and Barnabas together were successful in bricking it up. And if something weren't done quickly, Gentile Christians would wind up, wind up being no more than second-class citizens in the body of Christ. Boyce points out on the basis of Jesus' death, all who believe become fully accepted by God and are accepted equally. He says it this way, quote, Peter's conduct compromised this principle. For it implied that there could be a superiority in some Christians based on race or tradition, end quote. He's right. you see that? Now some of you might be a bit skeptical about this whole attitude of superiority, but let me remind you that Paul, of Paul's discussion in Romans 14 on the topic of the weak and the strong in conscience, where Paul opens the discussion this way. He says, let him who eats despise him who does let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him not uh, who who let and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. It's a mouthful. <laughs> All right, you get the idea, right? Neither the weak or the strong are to judge each other, because neither are superior to each other. They're equal. This is a conscience issue. So there's no doubt about feelings of superiority that both groups harbored against each other. So what about today? Well, I mentioned the woke agenda that has now crept into the church. And I I, I listened, actually, to one known conference speaker, uh, a product, really, of the, the Nine Marks ministry on YouTube a while back, who proudly rebuked white Christians for being inherently white supremacists and called them to repent. And he also declared that he would never speak at a church that wasn't multiracial. Now, if Jesus died for all ethnic groups, making them one in himself, do we ever have the right to say that someone is not simply by virtue of the color of his skin? Can you see how easy it is to live a life that is inconsistent with one's confession and how that lifestyle, if left unaddressed, can actually destroy the unity of the body. It's very easy. It happens sometimes right under our noses. 
and it could do great damage. So there you have it, a scene at Antioch. Was it bad? It was. Did Paul have to confront Peter to his face? He did. Well, maybe Paul was too harsh with Peter. No, he wasn't. The gospel was at stake. And the text is clear. They were guilty of hypocrisy. Now, there's a tendency on the part of some Christians, beloved, in the church today who would be so hard on Peter and uh, who, who would not rather be so hard on Peter and Barnabas. And some of them would argue that, well, these two individuals couldn't help their actions because of their personalities. Maybe this whole thing was just a clash of personalities. Well, if that sounds out of place to you, it is. But it's really also more popular than you might realize for many Christians. The thinking goes like this. We don't deny that someone's actions can be hurtful at times, but he's not responsible for his actions because of his personality. And if any person is bound by his personality to behave a certain way, then any actions contrary to Scripture would not be his fault. He has no choice but to act in accordance with his personality. Now, I need to address this because it's an area that secular psychology, psychological thinking promotes, and as you might expect, it has found its way into the faith. The basic meaning of personality is this, the combination of characteristics or qualities that form an individual's distinctive character. These characteristics, those that particularly define you, are called personality traits. And some of them you may indeed have been born with, and others uh, you have learned along the way. Psychology says, at any rate, that these traits make you the person that you are today, like it or not, and are the reason for your actions. So a, psych so a psychoanalysis of Barnabas would reveal that his decision to sympathize with Peter's, Peter's position is indicative of his makeup. Can we really blame him? He had a natural tendency to want to please people. He was the son of encouragement, always building up, never tearing down, always wanting to see Christians realize their fullest potential. It's easy to see Barnabas diluting Paul's stern rebuke of Peter to a mere difference of opinion or something like that. He would want to harmonize the two opposing parties and protect the peace. Well, we cannot fault Barnabas for that. And his natural tendency would be to give Peter the benefit of the doubt and join with him, especially if Peter was wanting to live so as not to make life difficult for the Christians back in Jerusalem, which, as we pointed out last time, was one plausible view. But we also pointed out that if that was true, and Peter was curbing ministry or fellowship in some way in order to stave off persecution, well, then he was wrong in doing so. God meant for righteous acts to incur the persecution of the world. That's how you know you're being obedient. Not only that, but Barnabas' desire to encourage most likely is, his, is, his, is attributed to his gift of encouragement, which is not something that one is born with. We're not born with spiritual gifts. They're bestowed by God in the moment, at the moment of conversion. They're not natural proclivities. Uh, this idea that we can rationalize away or justify Barnabas' sin of joining in the hypocrisy of Peter and the rest on his natural propensity to want to encourage holes no water. 
Besides, Paul's quite clear that there was hypocrisy and that Barnabas was carried away by it. He gave in to it, where instead he should have stirred, stood firmly against it. Now, beloved, don't be misguided by secular psychological theories. Don't be intimidated by them because they come with some measure of human authority. They're clearly wrong. I say that quite confidently. People with medical degrees instead of a sound theology that claim to be experts on human nature, that reject the author of life and what he says about human nature in his word, will misdiagnose man's problem every time. They never account for sin. Of course, they don't believe in it. Or guilt, for that matter. Clients are never wrong. And they can be very persuasive with their error. They could sound even very convincing about Peter. We could, we could hear them argue this way. We, we mustn't be so hard on poor Peter, who was clearly a victim of this choleric personality, which at times made him a bull in a china shop. His dominant personality made him brash and impetuous and unreliable and at times vacillating. Now, that's why he often made grand promises that he couldn't keep why he was the first one to thrust himself in headlong into a situation and, and only to bail out before he finished. His personality accounts for his foot and mouth disease, open mouth and served foot. He once rebuked Jesus. You will never go to the cross. Only to have Jesus rebuke him back for supporting a satanic agenda. He displays this this unbridled and misguided zeal in the Garden of Gethsemane when he hacked off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Caiaphas. As, a do, as, 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 a, as dominant as he was, he also struggled, though, with fear of man, which is why at times he was overzealous and at other times timid and withdrawing. His attempts to take on the Roman cohort in the Garden one minute is offset by the fact that he denies Christ three times before a lowly servant girl the next. Peter's choleric personality made him the master of absolute statements. I will never deny you. You shall never wash my feet. There was no gray area with this personality. He's a black and white kind of guy. He was also driven and wanted most the most of everything. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. His personality caused him, you see, to accept the Lord's approval in a vision to eat with Gentiles in Caesarea, but then rejected it later at Antioch and withdrew from Gentile Christians there. It's his personality that directs him. Don't you understand that? But frankly, this thinking is absolutely absurd. And that's the kindest way I can put that. Peter fits into the category of James 1.8 to a T. He was a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He grew. He matured. We'll see later. But that was Peter then. Are people hardwired differently, Pastor Bob? Yes. Some people struggle with lust, others with anger, still others with depression. Absolutely. But that's no admission that, that we're forever in bondage to some personality traits, much less that we can conveniently blame them when we sin. And our soteriology helps us here. 
At conversion, our fallen human nature was replaced with a new redeemed nature. Paul says so in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That the old has gone, the new has come. You are new creations in Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And in addition to that, we are commanded to be like Christ, no matter what kind of personality you are. That means that a Christian who has a particular difficult time with anger can be characterized by Christ's gentleness. Oh yes, he may have more diff- a more difficult time than some who don't struggle with temper, but that just means he has to work harder to conform himself to the image of Christ. But he can, and God expects him to. Now you may not even be aware of this position where Christians look to personality traits to explain why they do what they do, and what they can do and what they cannot do. It's been around for a while. Tim LaHaye essentially took this very position back in 1992 in a book that he wrote called The Spirit-Controlled Temperament. It's a book that is almost as embarrassing as his Left Behind series. In Spirit-Controlled Temperaments, he refers to four temperaments, sanguine, choleric, melancholy, phlegmatic, and then he adds eight more hybrids of them just for good measure. Many in the church simply swallow it up. Well, this is why I do what I do. I can't help it. But if you do your homework, you'll learn that the origin of temperaments is not the Bible, it's Greek mythology. And to use the terms here to characterize some part of a person's disposition is one thing, but to use them as hard and fast personality traits that determine our attitude and our behavior, well, that's quite another And it's absolutely false. And in the second place, the Bible does not refer to personality. Isn't that interesting? You won't find it. Rather, it speaks instead of our passions and our nature. So if we're not the product of our inclinations and proclivities, the sum total of our predispositions and propensities, then what's the reason for one's actions? How do we explain Peter's temporary sinful lapse into compromise it's not something in his personality or his environment for that matter what makes us do what we do well the author of life himself the expert in human nature told us in his word and he speaks of what we might call a heart dynamic the bible clearly teaches that we we can blame our sin on nothing external to ourselves isn't that a revolutionary thought Jesus specifically said that it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but rather what comes out of his heart, Matthew 15. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. Peter's heart problem in Antioch was that he feared man more than God. That's the truth. That meant that Peter considered what the circumcision party thought about him more than what God thought about him. Perhaps... Perhaps he thought they could ruin his reputation as a pillar of the Jerusalem church if if he fellowshiped with Gentiles. We don't know for sure, but we do know that he had an illegitimate fear of man. And when people today are driven by a fear of man, they can wind up anywhere between two extremes. Two extremes. One extreme is that they so crave the praise of men so much that they become braggadocious. They give ostentatious displays of their ability to impress people just to be accepted. 
because they want to be accepted. It was the class clown back in your high school, or that person, that annoying person at parties who learns as much trivia as possible in order to impress people. Or the know-it-all that always has to have the last word. He wants the praise of men. The Pharisees were like this to some degree. Jesus leveled many woes against them in Matthew 23, all beginning with you hypocrites. Listen to verse 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness and cleanliness, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The other extreme of the fear of man leads really to a reclusive lifestyle, or worse, suicide. Some people never leave their house. They get a note from their therapist that says that they have social anxiety disorder in order to receive medical disability, and they never go out again. But anxiety is not a disorder, it's the fear of man. And those who fear man to this extent cannot take a chance on being criticized, even constructively, that would just crush them. So they play it safe, and they become recluse. Or worse, they take the permanent solution and make sure that they will never be criticized again. It's really an extreme love of self. Both extremes are sinful and idolatrous. The solution to an idolatrous heart that idolizes something other than Christ as the object of his affections is repentance and change and training in righteousness. And we see people who mean business for Christ overcoming their fear of man in our biblical counseling ministry time and time again. They come to fear God more than man. And that's what we need to do in these last days if we are going to live Christ to the world. Well, next time we look at the nature of our rebuke. So more to come. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word We're grateful for this passage in Galatians, and we thank you so much for uh, hearing us as we ask your your grace to work out in our lives in a way that will manifest this thinking and this behavior. We do pray, O God, that we will uh, we will live to to benefit the body to to shore up the unity of the faith that exists between us and that we will always keep ourselves in check. We thank you then that we have principles here to do just that. We pray that as we do, you would be honored and glorified and that you would benefit your church. In Jesus' name we pray.